How great was that, right? Wow, that was amazing. I'm sorry if you're an Alabama fan. I apologize ahead of time. But that was truly amazing. What what I loved about that, and of course, I'll give you a little bit of background on me. Um, I uh, my father, my grandfather played football for Auburn. So anytime Alabama loses, that's good in my family. But uh, anyway, that was an amazing game. I mean, is there a better way to end the college football season with six seconds left, you know, down by just a few, and then a touchdown to win it with one second remainder? And what I loved most about that story was that it was Hunter Renfro who caught that winning pass. Hunter Renfro, I don't know if you heard what the announcer said, but he was a former walk-on. At 5'10 and 155 pounds coming out of high school, nobody wanted Hunter Renfro on their Division I football team. Nobody was willing to offer him a scholarship. And yet, Dabo Swinney, a former walk-on himself, the head coach for the Clemson University, saw some potential in this young Hunter Renfro, let him walk on the team, eventually gave him a scholarship. Just like Gene Stallings, while the coach at Alabama in the late 80s, saw something in this young freshman named Dabo Swinney. Gene Stallings admits that Dabo really wasn't that uh, talented of an athlete, but boy, he had heart. He gave 100% effort, and eventually Gene Stallings decided to reward Dabo Swinney a scholarship to play football, and eventually they won the national championship in 1992. Isn't it great when a coach or a, or a, a teacher or a, or a boss sees some unhidden, untapped potential in someone and they, they give them a chance, they give them an opportunity and they succeed, it's amazing. Of course, the Bible's filled with those kinds of stories, isn't it? I mean, if you go to Genesis, right? Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob is the one who actually God uses to help save not only Israel, but many, many people from certain death because of a famine. In Exodus, as y'all read earlier just a moment ago, God chooses to call an 80-year-old man named Moses with a speech impediment to help lead his people out of Egypt into the promised land. If we look at Judges, we'll see that God calls Gideon, the youngest man in the smallest clan within all the tribes of Israel, to help lead God's people and to conquer the Midianites. Of course, in 1 Samuel, God calls a young boy named David, a shepherd boy, ultimately to, to help conquer the, uh, the giant Goliath and to help lead the people of Israel. God, throughout the Bible, is continually choosing the most unlikely people to use for the sake of his kingdom enterprises. As we continue our journey through Luke, Luke and look at the life of Jesus, we'll see that he continues with this pattern. As the Son of God, he begins to build his leadership team. And, and in Luke chapter 5, we see that he calls his first disciples a, a bunch of fishermen, Peter, James, Andrew, John. He calls these men, these blue-collar men. They're not the religious elite. They're not the most educated men. And yet he calls them because he sees within them men who are faithful, available, and teachable. If we want to be the kinds of people that God uses for the sake of his kingdom, we have to be faithful, available, and teachable. In Luke chapter 5, we have the great story about how uh, Jesus is preaching at the Sea of Galilee, and he asks Peter, uh, he gets in Peter's boat, and he says, push out some. And so then Jesus begins to preach from Peter's boat to those who are on the shore. And then after he finishes his sermon, Jesus turns, the carpenter, turns to Peter, the professional fisherman, and tells him, why don't you cast your net on the other side and you'll catch some fish? And Peter's like, ah, you know, Jesus, I've been out all night. I mean, I'm I'm the professional fisherman, right? He was out all night trying to catch fish and yet unsuccessful. But then he says these powerful words that we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 5. Peter says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Peter proves at the very beginning of his call to be faithful and teachable. 
When Jesus, the carpenter, tells him to put out his nets, he does it simply because Jesus says it. If we want to be the kind of people who are faithful and teachable, then we need to hear God's word and we need to do God's word, specifically what we find in God's holy word, his Bible. When Jesus tells us that we're called to pray for those who persecute us, we should pray for them. When Jesus tells us that we should feed the hungry and we should clothe the naked, then then as the body of Christ, we should feed the hungry and, and clothe the naked. When Jesus tells us that we should forgive those who have sinned against us and we should pray for those who have hurt us, we need to forgive and we need to pray. That's what it means for us to be teachable, faithful to God. But Peter not only proves to be teachable and faithful, but ultimately he proves to be available because after this incredible miracle, this huge catch of fish that Peter's able to get simply because he put the net on the other side, he confesses to Jesus, I'm a sinner, flee from me. And Jesus says, no, now I'm going to make you fishers of men. Follow me. And so Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they leave everything and they fall, follow Jesus. Now, real quick here, I just want to make a aside here. Sometimes we as Christians in the 21st century can read that about the call of Peter and say, ah, God wants me to leave my business and follow him and just go into full-time ministry. Not at all. I think that would be a misreading of this text. And, because really, as we'll see here in a moment, God has allowed our businesses and our place of work and our schools and our neighborhoods and our social circles to be great places for ministry. What does it mean for you and me to be faithful, available, and teachable in our place of work today? To find out, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. It may be found on page page 1095 of your Red Pew Bible. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Luke to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. We pray, O Lord, that as we read your word, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that might be open and transformed at the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray in all God's people said, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. Listen to the word of the Lord. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in the house. And there was a a large company of, of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. And after this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. I know that today most of us don't like paying our taxes. We're supposed to. The Bible says that and the IRS wants us to. The government needs us to. We don't really like paying our taxes. But for the most part, we don't hate the IRS. We don't hate people who work for the IRS. They're simply doing their job. And while the last thing any of us would probably want is to be audited, you know, we don't hate the the IRS agent who comes to audit us. We just know they're doing their job. 
But in the first century, people hated tax collectors because tax collectors were known to be extortionists. They were liars. They would overcharge what was really required and then take a little money off the top. The way the tax system worked in the Roman Empire was that you know, there were some set prices and the local tax collector would be able to charge a little extra and nobody would know. And even if a local citizen somehow found out that they were being overcharged, they really had no recourse. They had to pay what was being charged. And there were all kinds of taxes like we have today. There were poll taxes and there were merchandise taxes and there were property taxes. And if you were a Jew working for the Roman government, you were particularly hated because, well, you're working for the, for the enemy government. You're, you're an agent of the enemy. You're a traitor. His tax collectors were viewed as extortionists, liars, and traitors. So if you're trying to start a religious movement in the first century in ancient Palestine, why would you call a tax collector to be a part of your leadership team? What could Jesus possibly see in Levi, the tax collector? The Pharisees are actually wondering the very same thing. And in verse 30 of our text, they say, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. That's the same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint to talk about how the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. They grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and and sinners? Now the Hebrew root name for the name Pharisees in Hebrew, the Hebrew root for that is, is actually means separatists. And Pharisees pride themselves in being holy and the masters of the word of God. And they had all kinds of rules to help separate themselves from the other people, from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the pagans. And they wanted to make sure that they were holy and separate because they knew that if you fellowshiped with sinners, well, you might become a sinner and you might be susceptible to, to fall into their sinful ways. And so they, they prided themselves in being separate. And only any holy person in their minds would be separate. I mean, any God-fearing Jew would not want to associate with tax collectors because they might become sinners like the tax collectors. Liars, cheaters, extortionists, traitors. Why would Jesus possibly want to begin his leadership team with a tax collector named Levi? What is it that Jesus sees in Levi, the tax collector? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. When Jesus looks at Levi, the tax collector, he sees a sinner who's in need of a savior. When Jesus looks at Levi, the tax collector, he sees a man who needs God's grace. And don't we all need God's grace? The scriptures tell us in Romans 3.23, and the world testifies to the fact that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're, we're all sinful. In fact, Psalm 51 tells us that we're born sinful. We have a sinful nature that we've inherited from our first parents and their original sin, Adam and Eve, that left our own. We are prone to wander. We are prone to reject the ways of God and to do our own thing. Yes, we're all in need of God's grace. And fortunately, God in his amazing grace doesn't abandon us in our sin. No, he actually became one of us. That's what we just celebrated in Christmas, that Jesus, that God became a man, a little baby. Uh, Jesus sent his son to become a baby among us and and to teach us and to heal us and ultimately to die for us as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God, so we can have a right relationship with God if we simply believe in him. Yes, when Jesus looks at Levi, he sees a man who's made some bad decisions. And I know we've all probably made some bad decisions in our lives. But he also sees a man he knows will be humble enough to follow him. 
Jesus knows that over the long term, Levi, whom we also know as Matthew, is going to be proved to be a very faithful, available, and teachable disciple. After all, Matthew is credited for writing one of the four Gospels we have in our Bible. It's the very first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. It's when Jesus looks at Matthew, Jesus sees a man who will be faithful, available, and teachable. And ultimately, Jesus sees a man that he knows will be willing to use his resources, his influence, his home, his wealth to help introduce others to Jesus. When Jesus looks at Levi, he sees a great evangelist. Notice that one of the first things Matthew does when he uh, decides to follow Jesus, he holds a party. He invites everybody he knows. He invites all of his friends. And of course, the truth is, tax collectors in the first century didn't have a lot of friends because, well, they were despised by most people. So really, their only friends were tax collectors. And so he invited the only friends he had, tax collectors and other people of ill repute, other sinners, to to come and share a feast, to meet Jesus, this great man of God who's changed his life. And people come and they, they get to meet Jesus. They get to encounter the unconditional love that Jesus came to bring to all of us. Who are the people in your life, in your place of work, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, in your social circles, who need to meet Jesus? I remember when I was a consultant with Price Waterhouse in Dallas uh, many years ago, I was blessed to work with a lot of non-Christians, actually. Um, Now, I know we're not supposed to judge, but you could just tell by the language they used and the things they talked about and the things they did, they really weren't walking with Jesus. They didn't go to church. They weren't involved in that. They might have some kind of church background. But at the end of the day, I could tell these people, they didn't really know Jesus. And what a great opportunity for me to invite them to come and join me, uh, whether it be at a a church fellowship gathering or to play basketball on Sunday nights when we used to have an open gym at the church I went to in Dallas, or or just to come and experience fellowship within my own home as they met and interacted with other Christians. Now, it's true that we are not called to judge people. In fact, Jesus tells us real clearly in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we're not called to condemn people, but we are called to be discerning. In fact, Jesus will later say in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And so if you think about your friends and your classmates and your coworkers and, and maybe some of your neighbors, what's the fruit from their lives? Because the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that, well, if you have the Spirit of God, if you're following Jesus, then you'll naturally bear fruits of the Spirit, which he lists beautifully in 5, to 23. He says, these, these fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we're walking in step with the Spirit, as we pray and read God's Word and come to worship God together, we will naturally begin to bear fruits of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. But if we fail to exhibit any of these fruits, if people that we know fail to exhibit any of these fruits, and, and rather than exhibiting those fruits, they actually exhibit the works of the flesh, which Paul also mentions in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. They exhibit those kinds of works. Well, they're probably not walking with Christ. They're probably not following Jesus. Now, it's true that each one of us is susceptible to sin. Any one of us could be, you know, susceptible to envy or rivalries or dissension. I mean, any one of us. But 
But we don't want to persist in those sins. Because of the Holy Spirit, we'll be convicted of our sin and we'll want to turn from our sins and turn back to God. We'll want to repent. Notice that in our p- passage that Jesus says, he, he didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. He doesn't want us to stay the way we are. He wants us to become more like him. He wants us to be focused on loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbors ourselves. He wants us to repent from our selfish, sinful ways and, and turn towards God. But if we have a friend or a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor who, who doesn't seem to repent, who continues to have these habitual behaviors, then what can we do to help introduce them to Jesus so they might be changed, as Matthew was changed, as we have been changed? Notice what Matthew does. He has a party. Now, as Presbyterians, we should be people of celebration, right? I know we're called the frozen chosen. That's a misnomer. We are people who love God, right? And we're saved by grace. In fact, it wasn't us. It was God who chose us. So we're so grateful for that. We should be people of celebration. In fact, all Christians should be people of celebration. If you look at John chapter 2, the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus does, he's at a wedding banquet. And he turns water into wine. I mean, the party's starting to die. And he's like, no, I got this. And he fixes it, right? And it's great wine, right? Now, don't get drunk. The Bible says don't get drunk. But nonetheless, There's a party taking place, and Jesus is right there in the middle of it. We have so much to celebrate. We've been saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. We we have the assurance of eternal life. We should celebrate it. You know, there's a great opportunity for us to celebrate. There's a great opportunity for us to have a party coming up in a few weeks. It's called the Super Bowl. Everybody loves to watch the Super Bowl. Even if you don't like football, you like the commercials, right? Begin to pray about how you might invite people to come over to watch the Super Bowl. Bill Hybels in his book, Just Walk Across the Room, talks about the fact that he loves to have these things called Matthew parties. He names them after Matthew, where he will intentionally have a party and he will invite some of his neighbors who do not go to church and he'll invite one or two Christians from his church to this party. And he just prays for the party. He prays before the party happens that God might allow these interactions to naturally lead to spiritual conversations. And inevitably, it always does. I mean, just imagine going to Bill's party, right? And let's say you're one of the neighbors and you go to the party and you're like, hey, how's it going? And and then you meet someone. Well, how do you know Bill? Bill's the common factor. Everyone's here because it's Bill's house. So how do you know Bill? Oh, well, you know, I I go to Bill's church. Bill has a church. And then the conversation starts. Yes, we need to do all that we can to reach out to people, to let them know that we love them and experience Christ's love and experience Christ-centered fellowship by inviting them to have a party. Now, maybe you're, you don't have the gift of hospitality. You're like, oh, I don't really want to have people at my house. Well, invite them to our party. We have one every Sunday. It's called church. We worship God every day, every Sunday, right? What an opportunity we have to invite friends to experience the love of Christ firsthand, the fellowship that we have here every Sunday as we celebrate God's love. Yes, when everyone else saw a tax collector, when Jesus looked at Matthew, when he looked at Levi, he saw a great evangelist. He saw someone who was willing to use his home, his resources, his food to help him introduce others to Jesus. Tom Rainer, a church statistician and demographer, has found out that 82% of non-Christians, of unchurched people, said that they would be willing to go to a worship service to church if invited by a good friend. That means 82% of our non-Christian friends would be willing to come, to us, come with us to church if we invited them. The problem is we often don't invite. We think, well, they have their own church, or I don't want to offend them, or I don't want to make it awkward. We just need to invite. 
so they can experience the love of Christ that we have in this place, so they can come and meet Jesus, the one who came to save us all. May we, guided by the Holy Spirit, seek to do all that we can to invite our friends to Jesus. Because the fact is, the most important step in evangelism is the first step. It's prayer. As Presbyterians, we know that no one comes to Christ except by the Holy Spirit, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that ultimately leads us to Christ. And so we've got to start praying for our coworkers and our classmates and our neighbors who are far from God so they might experience God's love, so they might get to know Jesus as we know him today, so they too might be saved. Please join me now as we pray. God, I thank you for the way you've placed each one of us in different neighborhoods and different social circles and in different places of work and in different schools, and you've given us an opportunity to be salt and light to a hurting world. Lord, I know that each one of us have friends or classmates or coworkers or neighbors who, who don't know you, who are far from you. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to be discerning and, and wise in how we might reach out to them, whether it's having a Super Bowl party at our house, inviting them to come and, and to meet some of our other, our other church friends, or simply inviting them to come here to this celebration we have every Sunday. God, help us to be bold on our invitation as Matthew was. In gratitude for your amazing grace, may we do all that we can to invite our friends to meet Jesus. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said,